This podcast contains strong language and graphic depictions of criminal offenses. This episode includes discussions of murder, kidnapping, and sexual assault against children. Listener discretion is advised. Aren't we excited for today's episode? I am. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that discretion. Oh, right. We're <laughs> <laughs> discretion. <laughs> it's a good... We're in, we're in our vibe now. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite listening platform and share us with your friends. Now, let's get on with our cast introductions and jump right into the case. Hello, this is David. Hello, I'm Hannah. I am Josiah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. And this is Nathan. And I'm your host, Tanner Azanero, a.k.a. The Odd One. December 27th, 1988. A family prepares for bedtime in their suburban home in the Ringwood neighborhood of Melbourne, Australia. The Wills family consisted of parents John and Julie and their four children. At 5.30 a.m., a man wearing a ski mask broke into the back door of the Wills home. He brought with him a knife and gun and immediately moved to John and Julie's bedroom to confront and subdue them. He tied the couple up with copper wire and told John to give him all of the money that they had in the house. After John told the intruder where to get it, he walked towards the children's bedrooms and found 10-year-old Sharon Wills, who had woken up to her mother screaming. The masked man supposedly referred to Sharon by her name blindfolded her, put tape over her mouth, and took her away from the home. John and Julie got free from their restraints and attempted to call police only to find that the intruder had cut their phone lines. He had been preparing for this, watching the family for who knows how long. A neighbor phoned the police while John frantically searched the neighborhood. Ten-year-old Sharon Wills and her masked kidnapper were gone. When police arrived, they suspected that the stolen cash was a distraction to the main crime, the kidnapping. They did not expect that this was a ransom kidnapping. Morning turned to day and no leads had been made. At 11 p.m. that night, a white Commodore vacationer sedan was seen driving erratically with its headlights off, almost colliding with the driver who had witnessed it. This was about five miles south of Sharon Will's home. The driver pulled alongside the Commodore, frustrated and yelling about the near hit at the Commodore's male driver, who turned his face away and did not react to their yelling. The light turned green and the Commodore driver turned right towards Bayswater High School. The witness did not get a good glimpse of the driver's face, their license plate, or anyone else who may have been in the car. 45 minutes later, Sharon was found alive near Bayswater High School on that same road. And I'm gonna send you a picture of this Commodore station wagon, just because I thought it was interesting looking at a case in a different country and seeing a car that I've literally never heard of before. (laughs) And boy, is it a looker. Wow, wow, wow. I believe uh, the Commodore comes from AMC, American Motor Company. Oh, interesting. I'm pretty sure I could be wrong about that. So I've also never that. heard of AMC once in my life, except for the movie company. Have sponsors. you just like <laughs> never seen a car that looks like this before? No, I've seen a car that looks like that. Looks I just like have never heard of it. Hmm. Let the record show that Australia. Tanner thinks a station wagon is Hang cool. on. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I said to Nathan the other day, talking about an old station wagon. A station wagon. It was a station wagon. Yeah. But it was old and it was the kind that had like the wood paneling on the doors and stuff. And I said it was cool just because it was old. I, in that same breath, said that it was ugly as sin. Mm. Mm. I 
don't remember that part. Are we playing <laughs> Secret Hitler? What's happening? Why, I don't remember. Why that are part. you turning on me? All right. Anyway, that, are you exposing me to people? I'm with Nathan on this one. Why? I don't think you said that. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't say that. Continuing. Uh, the podcast anyway. is over. Thanks so much. That was it. Uh, Sharon was found alive. We're, we're done. Okay. <laughs> it is by Holden. I was wrong. Oh, okay. Which is a very popular Australian brand. Cool. Cool. A thing I didn't know. The Holden Mute. Sharon had been kept for 18 hours. Her kidnapper bathed Sharon, scraped her fingernails clean, brushed and flossed her teeth before releasing her. He did the same for himself to avoid any use of DNA to locate him. At the time DNA was in its infancy, uh, this was 88 when this happened. So that's kind of an important detail to make note of that this dude was concerned about DNA in the late 80s. Mm. He taped a garbage bag up to Sharon's neck, put a shirt over that garbage bag, and then put another garbage bag over her head before releasing her. Sharon was kept blindfolded for the entire 18 hours of her capture. She had been repeatedly molested. The Victorian state government announced a $100,000 reward for help in arresting Sharon's kidnapper. Police urged the public to come forward with information, releasing some of what they knew about the strange behavior of the Commodore driver and details Sharon had given. Police knew that a crime such as this was likely carried out by a loner type who wouldn't be as willing to share their crimes with people they knew. Crimes like this, when unpunished, often lead to repeat offenses. I'm going to send you one more photo that I meant to send at the beginning, but I actually am, think it's better to have sent this now. So on on the photo I just sent you, we've already met uh, young Sharon, and hmm. we are now going to meet uh, one of the other faces uh, in that little collage. July 3rd, 1990, in Canterbury, Australia. 13-year-old Nicola Linus lived with her family in a home about 10 miles west of Sharon Will's home. While her parents were out for a late dinner with friends, Nicola and her sister Fiona slept until just before midnight when a man in a ski mask broke in through a window. Again, wielding a knife and gun, he confronted the two young girls and told them to cooperate with his demands. He tied up 15-year-old Fiona, leaving with her a message to be relayed to their father. I want $25,000. He took 13-year-old Nicola to get dressed in her school uniform and grabbed the keys of a rental car the Linus family had been using and brought her out to the car. 40 minutes after the man took Nicola away, the parents returned home to find their older daughter tied up and their younger daughter nowhere to be found. Police showed up and monitored every call that came through the Linus phone, awaiting the ransom call of the kidnapper. The masked man did not say how or when the ransom was to be collected, and at this point, police's best bet was to wait for a call. A day passed and the family made public appearances, begging the kidnapper to contact them, and that they were ready and prepared to pay the ransom for the safe return of their daughter. This police force, like the last, also suspected that the man had been planning this kidnapping and had been watching the family for some time. Police also suspected that the Linus kidnapping case was linked to the kidnapping of Sharon Wills. A day after Nicola Linus was taken, the Linus's rental car was found, dumped a few streets away from the home. No prints were found inside of the car. This was the description of the kidnapper they had at the time from Nicola's older sister. A soft-spoken man, potentially in his 30s, wearing a black balaclava, which is a different word for a ski mask. I didn't know that when I was looking this up, but uh, for the most part in this case, in all the research I was looking at, they called his mask a balaclava. I'm going pronounced to pronounce baklava. But that's definitely not. Don't <laughs> do. Don't make this the episode where I'm an idiot through the whole thing. <laughs> no, that's the design. baklava is a food. Baklava. Yeah. baklava. I wish I had some. Baklava. Yes, this kidnapper was wearing baklava on his face. His skin was radiant. If anyone ever saw it. Um, <laughs> he was wearing a black balaclava and a dark-colored outfit. 
Another $100,000 reward was announced for anyone who helped bring Nicola's kidnapper to justice and rescue her. 50 hours after her capture, Nicola was released by her kidnapper in the suburb of Kew, about 3.5 miles from her home. She was blindfolded and wrapped in a blanket, and like Sharon, had been repeatedly raped. Nicola went to a nearby home to use the phone and call her parents, and she was soon picked up by police and brought to a hospital. Nicola said that her kidnapper very thoroughly cleaned her and himself before letting her go, and that she did not see his face as she was bound and blindfolded most of the 50 hours. When she could see, she described that the man wore a balaclava with white stitching around the eyes and mouth, so she wasn't able to get any more details about his face. He drove Nicola around in a stolen rental car for about 10 minutes, parked the car where it was eventually found by police, and put Nicola into another vehicle where he put a blanket over her head and told her to stay underneath the dash in the passenger seat. They drove for about 45 minutes before she was brought into a house in a suburban neighborhood. As far as she could tell, no one else was in the house while she was being held captive except for the masked man. She recalls the man watching the press conference where Nicola's father pleaded for her return and made comments to her about it. Uh, the sources that I looked at for this case didn't mention what those comments were. Police set up some officers to watch the areas where Nicola was put into the other vehicle and also was found. Once again, the police had no specific leads to follow. Roadblocks were set up in different areas and every driver that came through was questioned about what they saw on the night Nicola was taken and the day she was released. When police linked the two abductions we've discussed so far together, they realized that the masked man had already struck before both the Linus and the Wills case. August 22nd, 1987, in the neighborhood of Lower Plenty, a man wearing a balaclava with white stitching on the eyes and mouth cut a family's phone lines, broke in with a gun and knife, tied up the parents with knots often used by professional sailors, stuffed them into a wardrobe, tied up their six-year-old son, and raped their 11-year-old daughter. He stayed in the home for two hours, stopping in the middle of his attack to make some food in the kitchen for himself. What? He stole some personal belongings from the family and made a phone call from their home. He spoke to someone who he called Bozo and threatened to bring harm to his children. To Bozo's children? Yes. Bozo the clown? He made a call and talked to someone who he referred to as Bozo. Yeah, like who else is called Bozo? Threaten their kids. Like and not in like, like a, a not but not in a but not in like a bozo. calling him a Bozo way. Like he referred like to him. Like his name was Bozo. Yes. After the assault, police determined that no phone call was actually made and that the rapist pretended to make the call, likely for the reason of throwing police off of his true motive to sexually assault young girls. At this point, three violent crimes had been attributed to this one faceless man. Police were concerned at the decreasing time between all three of the attacks and worried that a fourth was on the way. Public concern was also spreading like wildfire and the media gave the nameless man a moniker that to this day is synonymous for Australians with the boogeyman. They call him Mr. Cruel. And I'm going to send you one of the scariest pictures I've ever seen. Oh. Um, this is a sketch of Mr. Cruel in his uh, balaclava with the white stitching around the eyes and mouth. And I just want y'all to tell me what you see. And, uh... Sorry, this is just a question I have. This is all happening. Oh, shit. This is all happening in like the yeah. same city? Yes. Within like yeah. 15 miles of every. Oh. It's, like, it's stitched off to one side. Melbourne is the overall city. How 
Wait. Makes sense. It's how do you breathe in this thing? Yeah, seriously. So there's a. It's like it's, a, it's literally a ski mask. Yeah, it's but, just like a cloth well, ski mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, usually but, there's more of a mouth hole than that. And yeah. that's a sketch At too. Least. So I think it's supposed to be a little bit more frightening. But that's like. Is this like the official police sketch that they had? I think it's more of a media image. I wasn't okay. able to find the original source of it, but <laughs> basically, cool. one journalist called him Mr. Cruel, and it stuck. And this image is synonymous with um, this guy. This picture makes it look like it was like a normal ski mask and that he stitched, put like additional stitching on there to like close those gaps even more. So it'd be even harder. Right. I think the scariest thing about this is that you don't see the whites of his eyes at all. So it just looks like a fucking monster. Seriously. I don't like that at all. I don't like that at all. When you were describing it, I was sort of picturing something like this. It's yeah. just a ski mask. Yeah. But, but yeah, I don't know, because I, I looked up, I, I wanted to know, like, is there a difference between a balaclava and a ski mask? And I could not find one. There isn't. Yeah, I didn't think so. Interesting. Um, because they've been like used for a plenty of other things today. in the past before they were just ski masks. Right. And ski masks, I think, was more of the secondary thing. I mean, also, too, like, imagine waking up in the middle of the night. And just seeing this face. Oh, and he would come in like he would wake people up. Like he would, he, he, would he wake wasn't up like trying to sneak no. around and like sneak the kids out. He right, woke like up the he... parents, tied them the fuck up, threw them in wardrobes and shit, and then like went to the kids. Yeah. So it's almost like it's just. I mean, I understand the name Mr. Cruel because it's almost like I want you to know what what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And, he's and making the parents like so defenseless. Mm-hmm. To protect their own child. That's so awful. Especially when it's very obvious that he had been watching this family, you know, when, especially in Sharon's case, when supposedly he went to her and said, Sharon, you're, you're coming with me. Let's go. And knew her. And with Nicola, he said, go get your, your school uniform. Yeah. Yeah. He he had to have been around. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because like on the first case, you mentioned that they originally linked him back to. You said he also stole some things. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what they were, but they were very menial thing. Like they didn't, they they weren't like personal to the family, but they didn't like have a lot of value. Yes, Sarah. interesting because that I mean, given like his the first time that with all that stuff he did, and then the second time he was very singular. Really shows that sort of premeditated, like oh, I realized the thing I like doing on that first try. Mm-hmm. It's also weird is that these subjects or the victims are just. So different. Yeah. I Outside did also think that was interesting. Also, there's no clear type. These are confirmed Other than being a young cases. Girl. Yeah. They aren't sure if there's more before or after these. Sorry. So, the third person in this little group of pictures you gave us. We have not talked about that person. Yet. Okay, that's not so the, that's not the other case. No, so okay. there's a nameless victim who was the earliest one in '87. Nameless victim. There's okay. Sharon in '88, and then there's Nicola in '90. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So we haven't talked about. Th- okay. Yes. I will. I think '88. Patiently await this. No, you said that was the earliest one. '87 is the earliest. 1990 is Nicola, and then '80. The yeah, 1988 one, is yeah, Sharon. Yeah. So are you saying? He did this once before, and he got, a, and it was unknown. Yeah. So I talked about when I talked about him. Sharon was the first one I talked about, but yeah. she was actually the middle case. So they're the last one I talked about where right. he made the fake phone call. That happened a year earlier in '87, but that victim is nameless. There, mm-hmm. there's like no public okay. release of that victim's name. Gotcha. That's so, in- and so like, um, people who were investigating this case kind of were like, oh. That is yes. so similar to this one we had last yeah. year. Okay. Thank yeah. you. And also, one thing I'll, I'll point out, and I, we don't need to go too deep into this because maybe eventually one day we'll do an episode on this person, but this, in my opinion, this is the Australian... Uh, 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 Gary Ridgway? Yeah. No, not Gary Ridgway. Um, dang it. I was literally in my brain. Gacy? No, the the California murderer, the California murderer who got caught by DNA like two years ago. Oh, two years ago. Yeah. God, I know. 
I now see, I'm forgetting I the name. I see his face in my head. I don't remember Everywhere his name. Everywhere I go. <laughs> I see his face in my head. <laughs> yeah. The Golden State. That's Golden State I can't killer, believe yeah. I forgot that. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud of a host. Yes. Um, the the Golden one. State Killer. I feel like this is the Australian equivalent <laughs> of the Golden State Killer because the Golden State Killer also like broke into people's houses, made them do weird shit while he was there, and then would just act erratic <laughs> and crazy, stick around for hours, make food mm-hmm. in their kitchen while they were tied up in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Weird. Weird, weird stuff. As weird as, like, obviously every... All of this is horrible. Mm-hmm. I I still am, like, weirded out by the fact he, like, went in the kitchen and made food. Yeah. Why? Literally yeah. while the family was tied up and in the middle of him, like, assaulting this 11-year-old girl and while his 6-year-old like brother a... was, like, tied up next to her. You know, I feel like there are actually, like, a lot of cases of serial killers that you know, watch their victims for a little bit. They kind of understand the house. They it's premeditated. Like the the axe murderers or whatever. Like he would like sit in their attic and stuff and like eat their food. And they're just there's yeah. There's just like a lot of cases where that's a pretty standard serial killer thing I feel like I don't know I feel like it's an ego thing it's like a I'm doing this to your family your parents you're useless and tied up you can't protect your children I'm in the middle of doing this right now but you know what I could take a I could take a break for a second go make myself some food in your kitchen a, a third idea is that it's less of like an ego thing and more of just like a in his head this is it's risky, but it's so normal to him that he's like, oh, I'm also hungry. I'm going to get some food real quick. I think and it's like he just pauses his activity and goes and does it. I think there's also a familiarity aspect to it because if you're premeditated and you're watching this family so much, like you mentioned whenever someone saw his like was radiant, so we can only assume he's incredibly pale, which says not a lot of direct sunlight. So if he's watching them and a loner when he's in these places, these are probably the only people in his life that he feels a connection towards. So for him, it's not weird. He's like, oh, I'm familiar. I'm comfortable here, so I can make food. I've That's never thought point. of it that way. Yeah, I've never yeah. thought of it that way. You typically <laughs> form a connection sometimes to people you're watching. If he's abducting these girls and it's a sexual component, then there's a sense of intimacy and control for him, oh, so which weird. makes him feel familiar in the house, which gives him that sense of, like, I can do what I want because, like, this is where I'm comfortable. These are the people that I, that I care about Quotes in a sense. Care. So happy we have a psych major in the group, so... <laughs> That's actually really insightful. Yeah. yeah, that was really cool. Nice point. All right, thanks for coming to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> David's taking over from here on out, and I quit. <laughs> Let's get Zach. <laughs> if we get Zach in here, Just. all of the talking points will be an hour long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I love. I love you, Zach. We love you, Zach. Okay. <laughs> Art- <laughs> We're gonna roast you, but we love you. <laughs> Articles quoting unnamed police officers put forward the theory that Mr. Krull could be a former or current police officer due to his obsession with destroying forensic evidence and his meticulous planning for each crime. Many publicly dismissed these claims while others insisted it's truth. Outside of this controversy, police had no idea who Mr. Krull could be. All they knew was that he wasn't directly connected to any of the victims or their families, and that this behavior was rapidly escalating. Nine months passed quietly, with no sign of Mr. Cruel, and no leads bringing police, the public, or victims' families any closer to closure. Mr. Cruel's methodical approach to his kidnappings was paying off for him, and all he had to do to satiate his hunger was decide on his next target. April 13th. 1991 in Templestowe, Australia. 13-year-old Carmen Chan lived with her parents and two sisters in a home not far from the other Mr. Cruel attacks. Carmen went to the same school that Nicola Linus did. Police had suspected that Mr. Cruel had been stalking the school for victims since he had asked Nicola to get her uniform on before abducting her. John and Phyllis Chan, Carmen's parents, were working at one of the Chinese restaurants they owned while Carmen and her sisters watched TV together at home. Around 9 p.m., Mr. Cruel disabled an electronic high-security gate to the home and got onto the property that was otherwise surrounded by a tall brick fence. 
Before entering the home, he pulled out a can of white spray paint and left this message on one of the Chan family vehicles left in the driveway. Payback. More to come. Asian drug deal. He got in through either an unlocked door or window, and he confronted the girls threatening them with a knife. He trapped Carmen's sisters in a wardrobe and took Carmen. Her sisters eventually escaped and phoned their parents about what happened. Once again, the manhunt for Mr. Cruel sprung into full force. Helicopters, dogs, and tons of officers began the search. Police dogs followed a scent a few streets away where he likely parked his car, but then the scent was lost there. The, uh, the messages on the car, I can't remember if I wrote this in the script or not, I might say it again, but the messages on the car were likely another distraction. Decoy? Okay. Yeah, decoy mm. as yeah. to what the point of his, what his own method or reasons for the crime were. The following audio clip is of Carmen Chan's mother pleading for her daughter's return. I'll warn you, it is very upsetting. My daughter Carmen back to home. Carmen, look, this is your favorite dress. You you wear every day. Last Saturday you left at home. You had to come home and wear it. That coat's waiting for you. You love the coat very much. Carmen, your sister needs you. Don't spoil my family, please. I had to listen to that clip so many times today getting this ready, and I hated it. I yeah, that's rough. hated it, and I only listened to it one time, yeah, so... It sucks. Um, There's so much, like, anguish in her voice. Yeah. And I think the point of her being, like... Because it's a press conference, so this was on TV. So when she's saying, like, look at your dress, this like, dress. you need to come home and wear this, I was like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> sad. Carmen's sisters wrote letters to Carmen and Mr. Cruel asking for her release. Six days had passed since she'd been taken. This is the longest Mr. Yes, Cruel... longest. Yeah, this is the longest he'd held on to a victim thus far. Another $100,000 was added to the reward, now totaling $300,000. School began on April 29th, and no sign of Carmen had been found, and at this point, police began to worry that Mr. Cruel was not planning to release Carmen like he had his other victims. Police put together a poster featuring photos of the three publicly named victims of Mr. Cruel, the $300,000 reward, and a call to action for the public to give any information they have to the police. And I'm going to send you that poster right now. Um, someone do me a favor, and would you just read for me? There's like three um, questions on there towards the bottom of that poster. Um, and I'll, I'll also let you know they handed out like hundreds of thousands of these they were all over australia this is a really high profile case for australia uh would someone read the three questions for me i can do that do you believe you know the identity of this man have you informed police of your suspicions where was this man during the above dates so I think it's important to point out that this poster doesn't give the public much information on who they should be looking for. Mm -hmm. Police had released some information. Obviously, they have to keep things close to the vest for the purposes and success of a future trial. But truly, this poster is barren of information because they had very little. Psychologists had discussed a profile publicly to the media and detectives had also publicly talked about the type of person they are looking for. But there was no hard evidence released to the public for individuals to relate to any person they knew. Mr. Cruel was truly faceless and untouchable. A deadly combination for young Carmen Chan. One of the letters sent to Mr. Cruel by the Chan family attempted to appeal to his humanity. The letter reads, To the man who took Carmen Chan. Dear Mr. Kind, not Mr. Cruel. We miss Carmen very, very much. Please let Carmen go. We know you are a kind and caring person. We hope Carmen is safe with you. School has resumed, and it would be nice if Carmen can return to school. 
Thank you for letting her free and we can rebuild our lives. Please hear our plea. Love from the Chan family, father, mother, and sisters of Carmen. Mm. One year later. A whole year? No word from Mr. Cool or Carmen. Today's episode is brought to you by Anchor. Odd Squad, how many of you have wanted to, I don't know, start your own podcast? I know you're not part of one already. <laughs> I've thought about it. Yeah, Every day of my life. Honestly, pretty much never. never thought about I'm it start until a rival podcast, you wrote to me into this. You're going to start a rival podcast, yeah. Sarah? Well, the, do you know who would the be the perfect one? The peculiar. The peculiar one. Peculiar, the peculiar two. Yeah. Well, the perfect company to work with for your podcast would be Anchor. And here's a few reasons why. First off, it's free. Second, they have a bunch of awesome tools that allow you to make your podcast, stitch it together, put ads such as this one in it. Anchor is what I use for my podcast. We like that it's free. It is free. And it distributes your podcast to <gasps> Spotify, Apple no. Podcasts, and yes. many more. Oh my God. Nathan, I love how excited you are. Yes. Because so am I. Just a very efficient system. Oh, it's so efficient. <laughs> because you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Isn't oh, that crazy? my God. Yes, Hello. that's crazy. Oh, my God. I'm Give reading me nothing money. right now. <laughs> I'm making money right now from Anchor because I use Anchor. <laughs> Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hey April 9th, 1992. Just a few days before the one-year anniversary of Carmen's disappearance, a man walking his dog in Thomastown came across a human skull. This was about 12 miles from Carmen's home. Police arrived, found more bones, and later determined that it was Carmen. She died by three gunshots to the head, and it is uncertain when her death occurred, whether it was the night she was abducted or months after. I could go into detail about the investigation that followed, but I think I'll just give you the main points. Mr. Cruel, as far as anyone knows, never struck again. His true identity has never been uncovered. You're kidding. No one knows who he is. The last one is in 91? Uh, the body was discovered in 92. Yes. Yeah. She was abducted in 91. Yes. Gosh. Yeah. The Chan family has said in interviews that Carmen was not the type of girl to let a kidnapper take her away without putting up a fight, even with threats. Some people believe that Carmen died because she unmasked him or put his identity at risk in some way. In 2010, police began a new task force called the Spectrum Task Force to take lead on the Mr. Cruel cold case and supposedly had new leads to follow. They released more information, such as descriptions of Mr. Cruel's bedroom and bathroom from the memory of different victims, mainly Nicola Linus, who had spent the most time with him. And I'll send those photos to you now. Um, this is going to seem like a weird question, but do we know the three gunshots to the head? Do we know, like, how, like, where the bullets were or, like, the... I do not know that personally. I didn't see anything that specified... Um, all I know is that they were in the head. They were three gunshots in the head. I'm not sure if they were like execution style, like back here or what. Because that was my guess. I'm not is, sure. It would be execution style. I would also assume that, but again, I, I don't know. Um, the pictures I just sent you are based off of recollections of people who had been in Mr. Cruel's bedroom. Um, to us, these aren't too helpful. Mostly these were put out to the Australian public in case anyone had ever been to his home uh, and realized that these pictures were describing his place. Um, I think the most important aspect of that is that uh, a few of the victims remember seeing a camera mm -hmm. or at least a, a tripod for one, which mm -hmm. then can be inferred a camera. That's so gross. Police believe that if he is still alive, he is likely very active online as a child predator, mm -hmm. remaining involved in the spreading and consumption of child pornography. Police believe that he filmed his rapes and keeps the tapes as trophies and potentially even shared them with other pedophiles through the internet. 
though this has never been confirmed. Police have also admitted that a key piece of evidence, tape that was used to gag one of his victims, has been lost over the years. That tape could have potentially been used with today's technology to find a sample of Mr. Cruel's DNA. This case, being one of the most notorious in Australian history, remains active, and police have stated that it will not be closed until the identity of Mr. Cruel is confirmed. The last thing I want to end with is something I've never found before in any of my research of true crime. Before I share this audio with you, let me first say I found this on YouTube, and thus I cannot verify the validity or truth of what this man is saying, so please take what you're about to hear with a grain of salt. By no means do I want to attribute any truth or validity to this audio. I just randomly came across it and thought it would be interesting to share. Mr. Cruel is in the papers again today. It's been 20 years since the abduction, well, sorry, since the body was found of Carmen Chan. She was the last, what they suspect, victim of Mr. Cruel. And this is where I come in. Um, around the time of her disappearance, I lived in Coburg, and I didn't have a car. The nearest shop to my house opened at about 8 o'clock in the morning, and I had no milk. And with a child under about one year of age, um, I had to have milk first thing in the morning. Sometimes 6.30, 7, 7 o'clock. I had to have milk there, otherwise this kid's just going to scream. So I decided to take the walk from Elizabeth Street, Coburg, where I was living at the time. And I was going to Hendy Street and Gilbert Road. This was my destination for one of the 7-Elevens that I lived near. I lived in between two. Both were at the same distance. I just happened to go this way on that night. Um, this was the night of the Carmen Chan disappearance. This was the night she was taken. I made out about 11 o'clock at night. Don't know the exact time, but I know it was around 11 because I thought I can get to this store and back to my home within about an hour and I can be in bed by maybe just after 12. It's about a 20 minute walk, but you know, screwing around at the store and whatnot, I didn't know what time I'd get back. On my way to the store, I cut through a creek area. I have to walk up a big hill to get to the shop, sort of just putting it off to the end of the journey. So I was looking towards the creek as I, uh, <coughs> as I took my route along Elizabeth Street, up, up Jenkins, down, uh, I can't, don't know the name of that road there. But anyway, heading towards Henty Street and Gilbert Road. Walking along the creek, I hear a crack. It's a gunshot. <clears throat> I didn't hear any gunshots before this. I didn't hear any gunshots after this. And apparently Carmen Chan had three bullets put in the back of her head. So whether... But when I looked up, I seen a ute. I, uh, relative to that era. Um, I seen a man standing there looking like he was wearing possibly overalls and then like a spray jacket on the top. And he had his back turned to me with the gun raised up in the air. It was almost like he seen me coming, set the gun off to let me know he was there. And, well, it was enough to frighten the shit out of me and I took off up what I think is called Kingsley Road, which goes up to Gilbert Road, and then I walked along to Henny Street where the 7-Eleven was. Didn't think much of this until the next day, when Carmen Chan was all over the news. And it uh, came to me, came to me that I may have seen her killer. 
or herb doctor. Doctor and killer, I should say. Um, anyway, went out of my mind again till a year or two later when Carmen Chan's body turns up in Thomastown behind an electric plant. By this time, I'd moved from Elizabeth Street in Coburg. And now I'm just going to flick through the blocks. I moved. Excuse Parade. It's High Street. I ended up living on High Street. Not far from Mahoney's Road in Thomastown. And that's where her body was found. Thomastown terminal station which I'll just put in make sure it's in the screen there um, the cops set up a caravan and I went and told them what I'd seen on that night it's just strange though I mean like these two places I'm showing you they're only about no shit you could drive there in under 10 minutes from where I seen the shooting that night to where the body was found under 10 minutes. Yeah, just my little story about Mr. Krull. What I've seen. Do I have a suspect? No. Do I think so? I know someone that could be uh, someone to look at? Yes. I know that was a little hard to hear, but basically that was a dude who uploaded on YouTube the night that Carmen Chan was abducted, seeing a dude in overalls, which I think I mentioned it uh, earlier. He was wearing overalls in one of um, the kidnappings, not Carmen Chan's. Uh, but the night of her kidnapping came across a dude fire off a gun, uh, made like eye contact with that person, uh, went away, and that ended up being like, 10 minute walking distance away I checked all of the locations that he was talking about and uh, even in the video he's like showing you a map and he's like he's mentioning all the right places um, of you know a 10 minute walk from that point where that happened to where her body was found and I didn't mention this but her body was found because there was construction or some kind of um digging that was happening that brought up the shallow grave it basically like moved the ground around and and pushed a shallow grave upward and they weren't able to tell when she died they had no idea her remains were fully skeletal um mm. so i'm not saying that that's real i'm not saying that that dude is not making that up and that that's all a bunch of horse shit but it technically his story of coming across you know Mr. Cruel and Mr. Cruel having killed Carmen literally the night of is potentially true that's very possible yes so especially saying if that's... it's just skeletal remains yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like you know you're saying like you can't really determine whether or not she was killed like the night of her abduction or like a few months after at I least feel, in 1991 yeah, yeah. I, I mean I feel like if it was months after like if he had kept her if he had done all that stuff with her and then was like alright I'm gonna kill you now she would still be like partially there I don't right. know it's I mean weird. I don't know how rapidly bodies decay I don't know outside, science. outside of like the like the tomb that a casket is put in when it's just straight in the soil it it's no time at all. Oh, okay. It's like even a month could be mostly skeletal remains. From oh, I guess that makes sense if you're just like in the straight, if oh, you're yeah, like in exactly. the earth. Okay. Um, it's very quick. I didn't know that. I, I mean. It can depend though, depending on the temperature. Yeah, it can but depend, Australia but Australia is pretty warm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I find it really, really interesting that like for the first two victims they were returned you know traumatized but safe and and the one before that he didn't even take her he just kept her in the house yeah, yeah. i mean I, I guess like it got you know progressively more intense because mm -hmm. that's just like how serial killers and crazy people are i feel like like the when they get a taste of it it just progresses and gets 
awful, but it's really interesting to me that, I mean, he shot her and I feel like he wouldn't have, it, it wouldn't make sense to me that he would like keep her and then do all that stuff to her. And then just one day just decide to kill her. Like, I feel like he did it in a panic. I agree. And three yeah. shots could be him freaking out and being messy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I exactly. Agree. I was going to make that same point, especially when it's interesting to know, as far as we know, he didn't do anything else after Carmen. After Carmen right. was murdered, there's no other confirmed or even as far as I researched, suspected Mr. Cruel yeah, cases. Yeah, could be like a traumatizing thing for him, like yeah. going back to my whole familiarity band of like, oh, now I've had to do this, like, holy shit, I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I feel like she must have put up some sort of fight or like you mentioned, like maybe unmasked him or something, did something that panicked him Mm -hmm. and threw off his whole rhythm that he kind of gotten into. And I, I feel like he just panicked and that happened and he had to cover it up because, I mean... Everybody else was returned. I mean, they were traumatized, but they were returned. And I feel like... And he was in full control of all those situations. Police had exactly. no fucking clue the entire case. Yeah. It's been, yes. what, 29 years? Still yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Nearly 30. Years. Yeah, since, yeah. since, since uh, just Carmen's case. Yeah. More than 30 if you go all the way yeah. back. I mean, I don't know how, like, public... DNA DNA was at that time like how you can be you know convicted of something based off your DNA but it's I know really, they were using it yeah for sure but it was really, still new it's interesting to me though that he was so adamant about that because I mean if he hadn't done that and like had been you know sloppier and hadn't really realized that like maybe we would have found some of his mm-hmm. DNA and been able to like Trace that. I don't Very know. Likely. You yeah. know what I mean? But it's and like he he knew that. So I wonder if that was just like he saw that and was like, oh, I have to be really careful. Mm-hmm. Or if he had like an intimate knowledge about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the missing tape. Like you said that. D- d- are they saying it just like yeah. happened to get lost uh, so in a shuffle? One or? thing this case did like rewire the law enforcement protocol in yeah. Australia. Uh, because uh, I didn't go super into it just because there was so many years to go over. But there was a lot of like malpractice mm-hmm. and stuff that might have led to his capture that mm-hmm. wasn't being done um, by and, police in the in the late 80s, early 90s. And listening to True Crime, I, I think I've told you, talked to you, Tanner, about this before, was just like in these frustrating cases where it's not solved so frequently you you come across those times where you're like oh my gosh of course they lost the mm-hmm. evidence but the that evidence storm. may be why it's unsolved right so in these unsolved cases you're you come across those annoyances like that it's those one in a million things well, and that's what makes you wonder like did the person have intimate knowledge of the like of law enforcement protocols and stuff knew that they weren't paying close attention was someone like in law enforcement that had something to do with it? Like or you always, you always wonder: is it like a Dexter situation right. where, like, right. where it's someone literally in law enforcement, and so they can sort of cover up their mess? I mean, I don't know. You know, right. I mean, he's obviously t- a smart guy. Sorry, David. Go no, ahead. you're good. I mean, part of it could be too. This is '80s, so it's before like the dot com boom. So there is no dark web at this point in many ways. Yeah. So if he was using the child pornography tapes as trophies that completely throws his theory out the window. But if he has connections to like child pornography rings and all that stuff, and he's a marketer in some cases, then he would know about, I mean, those dark circles always know about what's going on in the police force. So that's also probably a good indicator of like, Oh, he's literally like to use the term professional in this capacity. Mm-hmm. So that would make sense that he knows things and can avoid things if he's in that market. To bring it back to my comparison to um, the Golden State Killer, the Golden State Killer left evidence everywhere. The only reason he didn't get caught for so long was because it took forever to realize that the four different names that they had given all these different criminals were one dude. And then after that, once they, you know, they played the... uh, 
familial DNA matching thing, mm. then they got him. Um, I'd be interested to see if this guy would be caught in a similar way if they were able to get um, their hands on some old DNA. But it seems like this this very comparable in terms of the way he carried out his crimes criminal Mr. Cruel did what Golden State couldn't, which is be overly smart and almost like 10 years ahead of law enforcement. Right. I mean, at this point, 30 yeah, I can't believe they still haven't found the guy. No idea. That's Literally, insane. as far as I know, it's still an active case, so maybe they know more. And they did start that task force ten years ago. I don't know if it's still active. Okay. Yeah. I would guess not, but um, I'm not sure. But literally, as far as I could tell, they've had zero fucking idea who this guy is since the beginning. Mm. That's absolutely yeah, crazy. I, I guess he was like super thorough. He literally, like, he kept the kids blindfolded for most, if not the entire times that he had them for, like, a whole day or more. And even still, like, as why would you be that thorough in terms of, like, covering up DNA tracks when that wasn't even a... I mean, it was a thing, but it wasn't like, he like oh, one his... day they might they might be able to test my right. DNA and know right. who I am, so I better clean this up. Right. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's why he's so ahead of the, the curve. And, and also, he didn't let his guard down in his own home. Like, mm-hmm. the one place where all other, like, once you find the place, it's a gold mine of evidence. Like, he didn't leave anything to find at all. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. That's a huge help toward allowing us to keep the podcast going and eventually make it a weekly show. And we very much appreciate your support. Link in the description if you want to see photos from our case as well as sources, among other things. Uh, for me and all my friends, thank you very much. Until next time, I'm your host, Tanner Azanero, The Odd One, out. <laughs> Good one.